Greetings from scenic Van Buren County. If you ever get down there, stop by. I had, it was a great pleasure when Dr. Ahmed asked me to come talk with you guys, because this is my alma mater. You know, I'm not used to being on this end of the discussions. I'm usually sitting out there. But having you guys as the referral spot for our traumas always makes me feel pretty good because there's two things I really enjoy about air care. One is them landing, but better when they leave. You guys see a lot more trauma than I do, but I think it's important that you know, we talk about not just how to treat trauma, but to think about what it looks like from the other end. And that's why I'm here today, because I want to talk to you about trauma from a patient's perspective. And I'm going to use this little fender bender I was involved in a few years back just to, as that basis. But before I start, I have a little disclaimer. You know, some of the things you may hear may sound a little derogatory towards Van Buren County <coughs> Hospital, my home hospital, and the University of Iowa. Don't take it that way. The things that happen to me could happen anywhere. So that being said, let's begin our trip into the trauma zone. Imagine if you will. It's a beautiful day, March 1999. I just finished a busy day in one of our outlying clinics, and I'm heading back to Kisaka, where I'm scheduled to be on call that evening. So I'm rounding a corner about two miles south of town with visions of discharge summaries and paperwork in my head, when I notice this old truck barreling along at a pretty good clip. Then I notice these, this young gentleman kind of ducks down like he's playing with the radio or he's trying to pick something up off the floor, and he comes across the center line. And in response, I start to head towards the shoulder, but as always happens, you know, they kind of start going back across to their side of the line. So I correct as well. The next thing I know, he's right in front of me, and I've got two choices. I can go left and go into his lane and try to go around him, or I can head towards the ditch. Well, I choose heading for the ditch just as he sits up, realizes where he's at, and he starts heading towards the other side of the road, too. But not quite soon enough. Boom! The loudest sound I ever heard in my life just occurred, and my vision went white. Welcome to the trauma zone. I quickly realized that my whiteness in my vision was the airbag that had deployed. And as it went down, I was able to see what used to be the front of my full-size Dodge Ram pickup. I heard moaning in the road behind me, and I turned and looked and saw this young gentleman lying in the middle of the road with his leg at a definitely non-anatomic angle. His truck was a further bit down the road in the ditch. So as I turned to get out to go help this young gentleman, which is what we do, we're healthcare workers, I felt this horrible fullness in my hip and I felt the crepitation on bone on bone in my arm. So I grabbed my arm and put it up on the dash in front of me, noting the warmth of the blood from the open fracture when I pulled my hand back. Well, it was by this time I figured out I wasn't going to get out of this truck by myself, so I started looking around for my cell phone. And it was a course where you would expect on the floorboard or the passenger side as far away from me as it could possibly be. 
So as I'm about ready to let out this long list of expletives, I look up and I see one of our local attorneys calling in on the cell phone. Realized that's the, probably the first time I've ever been happy to see this guy. <laughs> well, knowing that the ambulance was going to be coming soon, because we were only two miles out of town, I just kind of laid my head on the steering wheel and went through what I thought my list of injuries were. I was thinking pretty clearly. I didn't have any pain in my head. I had no shortness of breath or chest pain. My belly didn't hurt. My hip was in question, but I could still move my toes and I could still feel them. My elbow was pretty trashed, but I could still move my fingers and feel that as well. So I just kind of laid my head on the steering wheel. I could hear the sirens in the background, so I just kind of waited because I knew they'd be there pretty quick. Doug Dehart, who happens to be a friend as well as our ambulance director at home, lives two miles from where the wreck occurred. And he was at home just putting his feet up and heard the impact. Then he heard the pagers go off. And in a small town, when there's any kind of trauma, the EMS folks come out of the woodworks. So he hopped into his truck and headed towards the scene. <coughs> Dr. Breckenridge, one of my partners, was waiting for me to get back from Farmington so he could go home when he heard the trauma call come in. So he was asking where Tim was, and the nurses said, he's part of the trauma. It's a hell of a way to get out of call. In any case, the ambulance arrived, and after everybody was kind of getting there, it was kind of funny because they were heading towards the young gentleman and in the middle of the road. And I later found out why. It had been paged out as a 1050F or fatality, and he was obviously alive. Doug came up to my truck, and as he did, I sat up and went through what I thought was my litany of injuries. The look on his face was pretty priceless. I'm sure he cleaned his britches out once he got back to the ambulance shed. So he called the Jaws of Life over, and they started working on the door, and as they did, he and Nurse Jester, a friend, colleague, as well as a paramedic, crawled in the truck, stabilized my C-spine, put the C-collar on, and Nurse Jester attempted IV access but my veins weren't really cooperative that day. So the rest of the time was spent putting the KEDGE unit on and protecting me from the extrication process. Dr. Breckenridge stopped by on the way because he came out in the second ambulance to see what he could do, and I told him to go take care of the kid in the middle of the road because there wasn't anything he was going to do for me. <coughs> so it took him about 45 minutes, but they finally got the door popped on my pickup. And when they did, they were kind of looking at me, trying to figure out how to get this large package out of that small spot, when I felt my condition change a little bit. I got a little lightheaded, I got a little woozy, and I said, Doug, it's time to get me out of here. So they quickly got the spine board, slid it up against the seat, and grabbed the kedge unit, turned me, laid me down, and slid me out in one smooth motion, which we've trained them to do hundreds of times with the most resultant horrible pain I'd ever had in my life and when they straightened my leg out. They transferred me over onto the ambulance cot and every bump they hit, it felt like my leg was gonna fall off. So I'm yelling, watch my leg, watch my leg, which I'm sure made the ambulance crew that I work with every day even more calm. In any case, they put me over in the ambulance and, and ambulances are kind of funny things. You don't have to be in the back of them, and you get a little nauseous, and you're sitting up. You can look out the window and look <coughs> at the horizon, and your nausea goes away. But when you're a trauma victim, strapped down on a spine board, C-collar in place, bonkers on, kids unit on, you got one place to look. 
and that's up. And to add insult to injury, if you've ever been in the back of an ambulance, or if you're an old farm person, you know they ride like a grain truck. But fortunately, it was only about two miles into town. So they got me unloaded and they started me down the hallway. And hallways are pretty funny too, because when you're on that gurney, you feel like you're standing still and the ceiling's moving. And it makes you pretty nauseous. And unless you've got flies and the lights to look at to try to keep your perspective, you don't know what's going on. <coughs> well, we went by the emergency room where Dr. Breckenridge was taking care of the young gentleman uh, that was the other half of the trauma. He had an open femur fracture and a closed head injury, and Air Care 2 from Waterloo was picking him up. Air Care 1 was out, and they were going to come back and get me. So they took me to the next biggest room in our small hospital, which was the x-ray department. They transferred me over onto the x-ray table, and Dr. Nakfi, our general surgeon at the time, came in to do his initial survey. Well, I got to look at what trauma victims get to look at. So as he was doing his primary survey, the nurses were slamming in those two large war IVs that everyone always hears about. And as they got to the E of the ABCDEs, they came to my tie. Now, I'm known for weird ties in Van Buren County. My ties bring smiles to the little kids all the way up to the 100-year-old folks. So when they got to my banana tie, they were going to cut it off, and I started arguing with them, which sometimes I'm known about at home, too. So with a little discussion, I finally got them to take it off instead of cutting it off. Since Air Care 1 was out a little bit, we had a little time to do some scout films, and Dr. Nakfi went ahead and did those, and I was pretty close in my diagnoses. I had a comminuted dislocated elbow fracture, acetabular fracture, mid-shaft femur fracture, distal femur fracture, and what you can't see is the tibial plateau fracture. So when Air Care called in and they found out about these fractures, they wanted the mass trousers put on, which was kind of the standard at that time. It's kind of weird having five people lift up the bottom half of your body and slipping those things on. But that wasn't the worst. The worst was the shivering. I was borderline shocky, and every time I shivered, every one of these bones moved. With some IV fluids that were warmed and some warm blankets and a little bit of morphine, that kind of settled down. It was about this time my wife and daughter arrived. They'd been in a tumble, which was about 45 miles away. And back then, they didn't have a cell phone, but their friend they were with did, and they got a hold of them. And she really didn't know what my condition was. So it was a pretty long 45-mile drive for them. But she was visibly shaken, but very supportive. And my kids didn't want to see me. But I, may, I was insisted that they did, because I wanted them to know I was OK, or at least I thought I was. It was about that time I realized that, you know, you can't stand at the side of a helicopter and pee. So somebody was going to have to put a catheter in. I mentioned this to the nurses, and none of them were very forthcoming at wanting to do that. So I finally convinced Dr. Nakfi, look, somebody's going to have to do this. So after the perfunctory rectal exam to make sure your prostate isn't up around your tonsils, he went ahead and put that in. Kind of irritating, but, you know, it's necessary. Mike and Pat arrived with AirCare One soon after that, and they transferred me over onto the gurney and, you know, changed their pumps and did the things that they do and made sure that I was stable enough for the ride. And then we headed down the hallway again towards the helicopter. 
about halfway there, uh, Pastor Judy, our minister at the time, arrived, and she was able to bless the helicopter ride. So we went out to the chopper. And helicopters are interesting things, too. They're not made for the vertically challenged. The newer ones are a little bit more spacious. But Mike and Pat did a good job of using that front bubble of the helicopter as part of the splint for my leg. They kept manipulating me around until they kind of got that foot snug in there. And then we were off. It's a beautiful night for flight. There are lots of stars, and it was clear. And I must have done okay because the mass trousers stayed down. We landed on the roof of the, of the hospital here and came down in the elevator and started down the hallway so the hallway nausea could return. And it was at that time I got a little bit more anxious because I'm an old Cyclone fan. And I didn't realize the flies and the lights were so organized here. <laughs> well, we pulled into the ETC and I got pounced upon by a couple of young physicians and nurses. And one of the first orders of business was a nasogastric tube. Pretty irritating, but at least I didn't have to drink the Ready Cat. And I tried to re get across to them that I was kind of nauseous from that hallway trip, but they weren't listening to me. So I soon find myself covering at least one of the docks and one of the nurses with vomit. That must have peeved them off a little bit because that's the last thing I remember for about a week. So one week later, 12 units of blood, over 15 hours of surgery, and three days of ventilator assistance later, I woke up in the burn unit. Don't remember the SICU, but I'm okay with that. So what I'd like to do now is switch gears a little bit, and instead of talking about this trauma on a specific timeline, I'd like to talk about specific subjects related to this trauma. Pain. From the moment of impact until today, my feelings on pain are much different. Pain is real. Pain is different. For everyone. Immediately after impact, my pain was more of one of aggravation until they moved my leg. Then it was a little bit more overwhelming. Whenever I think of pain, I think of the pain service and I smile. The pain service, which I'm sure all you know, is a group of anesthesiologists and ancillary personnel that are dedicated to the treatment of pain that's either acute, operative, or chronic. The cup, I had several surgeries on my elbow while I was here, and a couple of them I was awake enough that I knew what was going on, and I barfed my toes out every time they gave me general anesthesia. So when they offered me an axillary block for the next surgery, I said, sure. So they took me in the pre-anesthetic area, got my arm back like this, and started prepping it and twanging at my axillary artery until they could f see if they could find the axillary nerve. And then they put in a catheter over needle in the area and give electrical stimulation until your arm jumps high enough that you know that you're close to the axillary nerve. Well, once they got that in place, they took the needle out and they put the block in, and it was great. I had absolutely no pain. I went through the entire surgery with minimal IV sedation, and I'm sure Dr. Katiala, the surgeon at the time, got tired of me jabbering. Post-op, I did fine, had absolutely no pain, and the pain service came and visited me and said, we're going to ship you back down to the ortho floor, you know, and see how you do. When it starts wearing off, just give us a call, and we'll come down and redose the block. And I said, cool. 
So he went down and of course the block starts wearing off a little bit and it wasn't that painful so I let it wear off a little bit more before I said anything to the nurse. And the nurse came in and I said the pain service said just to give him a call they'd come down and redose the block. So she scurried off to give him a call and the block wore off a little bit more. And the block wore off a little bit more and I called her back in. I said, have you been able to get a hold of the pain service? No, they haven't returned their pages and nobody wrote any post-op pain orders. But she's going to keep trying. So she took off and started to call again and you know, the block wore off a bit more. And by this time I'd been in Iowa City for a couple of weeks and I'd been able to practice some visual imagery and was pretty good at controlling what I would consider moderate pain now. Between that and my wife putting cool compresses on my forehead, we were doing pretty good. And then the block wore off some more. And then it finally wore off completely. Anybody that's ever had any orthopedic surgery knows what that deep, boring bone pain is that you can't get away from. They finally got a hold of the pain service and they came down and went to redose the block. And of course, by then the catheter had moved and they couldn't redose the block. So it took about two hours to catch up with the pain with IV morphine. So whenever I think of pain, I think of the pain service, and I smile. Initially after I woke up in the burn unit, I had a lot of pain, but I was so high on narcotics that I didn't care. As long as the ants stayed on the ceiling, I was fine. Once I got out of the burn unit, and I was kind of starting to get away from my IV narcotics, Dilaudid became my friend. It's a great drug. It's my favorite drug. As I got more ambulatory and my need for narcotics diminished, I got rid of all of the doses of Dilaudid except the nighttime dose. And it took me a little while to figure it out, but the nighttime dose had absolutely nothing to do with pain, but had to do with sleep. So after a couple of fitful days of rest of sleep and restless days, I finally said goodbye to my friend Dilaudid. I don't know if I wouldn't have had the medical experience I had if I would have figured it out as quickly as I did. Now, I'm a family practitioner that continues to do obstetrics. There's some people call us crazy, but we still do. And I have great respect for laboring people. And there's two things that happened during my trauma that brought me even closer to my laboring patients. Both have to do with elimination. Foley catheters are our friend. Sure, they're irritating when you first put them in, but after that, all you have to do is worry about catching the catheter on the bedpost and widening out your urethra. Even happened across the Foley distribution plant down in Oklahoma City. When I transferred down to the ortho floor, which was kind of a graduation time for me in multiple ways, they said that I could have my Foley catheter out. And I said, that's cool. So they took that out, and I was, you know, ready to use my new urinal at any time. And it was minutes after, probably five minutes after, that the patient transport team came to get me. They were going to take me down into the bowels of the university hospital to x-ray my entire left side. Being a family practitioner that has a pretty significant geriatric practice and uses catheters from time to time, I knew that sometimes men don't pee very well after they have a catheter removed. So I was a little resistant to head off down there without peeing the first time. But they finally convinced me that the x-ray people are very nice, and I have my own new brand new urinal, and I'd be fine. 
So we took off down to the bowels of the hospital and they transferred me over onto the table and started x-raying my left arm. As they did, my bladder distended a little bit because it had been pretty small for quite some time. And then it distended a little bit more as they finished up the x-rays of the elbow. So I asked the young x-ray technologists if they'd give me a little privacy with my brand new urinal and see if I could go. So with a little bit of grunting, groaning, and trying everything I could think of, I tried, but I just couldn't go. So I told them to come back in. They started x-raying my pelvis. And as they did, my bladder distended a little bit more. And then they got to my femur and my bladder distended more. And it felt like a full-term uterus to me. It's probably 10 weeks size, weenies that men are. In any case, I finally convinced the young x-ray technologist to help me stand at the edge of the table, which they weren't supposed to do. But with some grunting, groaning, a lot of gravity and a little bit of prayer, I finally got that sphincter to release. That was like ecstasy. You guys don't have a clue what that feels like. Well, maybe you do. The second thing that brought me closer to my laboring friends was bowel movements, or should I say the lack thereof. Every person in this room knows that narcotics cause constipation, and I'm sure the young residents knew that too. But every time I transferred from one service to the next, somebody forgot to write the orders for stool softeners and laxatives. When I transferred to the ortho floor, I got to graduate from a bedpan to a commode, which I thought was pretty cool. So with two nurses and my wife, they transferred me over onto this commode, sat me down, and I realized I was stuck. I'm a pretty good-sized fella anyway, but take this huge amount of induration in your hip plus this huge dressing, and they sat me in that commode, and I, I was stuck in it. So with one nurse pulling on my arm, my wife pushing on my back, and another nurse pulling on the commode, they finally got me out of that one and set me down on a bigger commode. But it didn't make any difference. I couldn't go. So after a couple of days of feeling like I had to go but not being able to go, I finally, with a little digital persuasion, delivered what felt like a seven-pound baby piece of poop. It sounded like a hedge post hitting the bottom of that plastic bucket. <laughs> And then I found myself doing something I never thought I would do, although I've had nurses offer it to me before, and that's convincing a nurse to give me a soap suds enema. It's a pretty weird feeling, but it was pretty effective. That very next day, the residents came in to round. You know that time when the residents come in, 5 o'clock in the morning, wake all the patients up, tear the dressing down, look at it, put the dressing back, they leave and the nurses come back and put the dressing on right? And Chuck Riggs, a friend of mine who happened to be a hemoncologist here at the time, stopped by, and he had this bag of goodies, dried fruits, dates, prunes. This guy knew what I needed. So I asked Chuck if he would discuss with the young residents the virtues of prophylactically treating narcotic-induced constipation, which he gladly expounded on for about 15 minutes. So I'm certain the residents and med students that were there never wrote an order for narcotics again without writing Persena. <coughs> Feeding tubes are overrated. Sure, they allow you to use your gut for nutrition, but they are the most irritating thing in the world. Any provider who tells the patient that after the initial irritation, your body gets used to it and it doesn't bother you, has never had one. Every time you move, Every time you swallow, 
that tube moves just a little bit in the back of your throat. So you always have this underlying level of mild nausea. And then the nurse comes in under doctor's orders and puts medication followed by flush, both of which are room temperature, down your 98.6 degree body and you feel this wave of cold nausea all the way down your stomach. This is the only time that I'll admit to that I played the two services of trauma and ortho against each other. The trauma team thought, well, you need that feeding tube for at least another week, week and a half. And I, and I understand the reasoning. You know, it, it helps nutritionally, it helps me heal better, helps me get going quicker. <laughs> well, the ortho team didn't have strong feelings one way or another. And since I happened to be on the ortho floor, I convinced the ortho nurse that the ortho service said I didn't need the feeding tube anymore. So before I knew it, this lady had her foot up my armpit pulling on that feeding tube until the pop of that weighted end came out. Sounded like Lawrence Welk was about to play, and I don't know how many people here even know who that is. In any case, once my nose quit bleeding, I realized I'd kind of painted myself into a corner. As a trauma victim that the sight, sound, smell of food just turned my stomach, and now I'd manipulated this tube out, I had to eat something or they're going to put that thing back down. So after racking my brain, I finally said, well, come on, stupid, you're a doctor. You should be able to know what to do. What would you do? Well, of course, we'd give them Jell-O. Wrong. Institutional Jell-O would never be condoned by Bill Cosby. I'm certain it's made by Knox and it's used as a hockey puck in its spare time. Even my daughter Allie, who's the connoisseur of Jell-O, wouldn't touch it. Finally came across something that I could eat, and it's an old Blair tradition, saltine cracker, peanut butters, and bread and butter pickles. It sounds weird, try it, you'll like it. The only thing that, the first thing that I could eat that smelled good, looked good, tasted good was a barbecue pork sandwich my wife brought up from the cafeteria, washed down about three or four bites, washed down with a little green fruitopia. And as you can see, I, I've done okay since then. <coughs> Friends and visitors. Friends and visitors are incredible. They are an incredible source of support and they are an incredible pain in the behind. When I was here at the university, my day consisted of eating physical therapy sleep, eating physical therapy sleep. The only time I could see people was when I was so wiped out, I didn't want to see anybody. So my wife would push my wheelchair up to the eighth floor, which is a beautiful place to be. She'd have a cup of coffee and read, and I would sleep. Once we transferred to Van Buren County Hospital, the nurses were like watchdogs. They knew that my patients were very well-meaning, but being a doctor in a small town is a little different from being a doctor in a bigger town. You know, the patients would come back and they'd see me, see how I was doing, we'd chat for a little while, and before they'd leave, they'd ask me to renew their prescriptions. <laughs> so they did a pretty good job of protecting me. After a while, it became obvious that I was going to be going home, which I was pretty cool with, but there was a bit of a problem. No matter how you entered my house, there was at least a footstep up. So within 24 hours, my friends, my neighbors, and my patients excavated, formed, and poured a cement sidewalk and built ramps into my house. There's no way you can express how that makes you feel. And I still can't express how that makes me feel.
How many people here have to take a shower and you know, wash your hair every day, otherwise you feel grubby? Try going a couple of weeks without a shampoo. Try going a couple of months without a shower. When I first woke up in the burn unit, of course, I didn't care. Yeah, you could do anything to me and it wouldn't make any difference. <coughs> Once I got on the ortho floor, I realized you could probably change the oil with my hair. So I expressed that to the nurses, but there was a bit of a problem because it was a little anemic. I'd been flat for a while, so every time they sat me up, I passed out. So they brought in this plastic board that's about like this. It looks kind of like a circumcision restraint board, which was a little bothersome. <laughs> and they put it under my head and shoulders, and they dumped this water on my hair. And I said, what are you doing? And then I realized it went down this trough and dumped in a bucket. I said, that's a pretty good idea. Then they shampooed my hair and then they rinsed it all out and that worked pretty cool. Once I could sit up to about 45 degrees, I remembered there used to be a barber over by Med Alumni Auditorium where I spent a lot of time when I was in med school. So we called over and got an appointment and went over there and she cut my hair about this long and gave me the best scalp massage I think I've ever had. Bathing was a whole different experience. You had a couple of choices. You had a sponge bath or a bath in a bag. Bath in a bag for the uninitiated is fleece cloth dipped in lemon-scented disinfectant soap pushed in a sack. And then they, the nurses can throw it in the microwave, warm it up. Then they come in and they wipe you all over. It makes you feel like you're covered with lemon-scented slime. You know, like you've been washed over with the little towelettes you get at the barbecue places. I preferred the sponge bath. The only issues I ever had with that was when I got home. My wife and I had this ongoing discussion about sequencing. You know, I felt that rinsing, soaping, rinsing, and drying was the appropriate sequence. My wife thought the last step could be left out and air drying would be fine. So we kind of had that ongoing discussion until I realized my family was eating a lot of barbecue and saving up the towelettes. My first attempt at a shower came about four weeks after my accident when I was at Van Buren County Hospital. They told me I was going to get my first shower, and I was pumped. They took my wheelchair into the shower stall, transferred me over to the shower seat, warmed up the water, and hit me with that stream of water, and every blood vessel in my body dilated, and I passed out. My first shower came two months after my wreck, when I was at home. I'd wheel my wheelchair over to the shower, stand up, hop up the six inches into the shower, lean up against the wall, turn the water on, wait for it to warm up, and then get my shower. That was wonderful. Physical therapy. From the moment I woke up in the burn unit till eight months after my wreck, daily physical therapy was a part of my life. And it still is, but it's kind of on my own now. My first physical therapy at the university consisted of sitting up without passing out, then standing up for 30 seconds. We got a little more aggressive once I got back down to Van Buren County Hospital. What they would do is they'd wheel my wheel, or I would wheel my wheelchair in from my room, which was at the opposite end of the hospital, using my right arm and right leg because the other side didn't work. It's just kind of a trick. You guys should try it sometime. Um, and then they would lock down my wheelchair, make me stand up, pull the wheelchair away, give me a cane and say, go from here to there. So I'd sit there and I'd shuffle with my right foot across the, hall, the room using the cane to kind of keep me from falling. I wore out one Birkenstock completely doing that. 
It didn't take very long working with physical therapists to learn a couple of things about him. If a physical therapist walks into your room with a smile on his face and a glint in his eye, you're going to learn three new things, and every one of them is going to hurt. Number two, physical therapist can't count. I don't know how many times we get to 20 repetitions only for them to say, oh no, there's four or five more. Part of my physical therapy consisted of riding a stationary recumbent bicycle. And what I'd do is wheel my wheelchair over to it, transfer over, put my right leg in the pedal and lift my left leg over into the other pedal. Then I'd use my right leg to put my left leg through a range of motion. The day that I made one complete revolution with my left leg was a big day. And I jokingly yelled out to Gary, our therapist, hey, Gary, we should do RAGBRAI next year. Never joke with your physical therapist. <laughs> hundreds of hours of physical therapy, hundreds of hours of riding a stationary recumbent bike, and hundreds of miles of riding a real recumbent bike later, we did RAGBRAI in 2000. I never walked up a hill. Mood. Trauma and depression go hand in hand. The important thing as the patient is to try to not let it get away from you. Prior to the present Gulf conflict, motor vehicle trauma was the number one cause of post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's still a very large portion of that. When I first woke up in the burn unit, I was so high on narcotics and euphoric from the narcotics that I was a happy guy. But when the IV narcotics went away, I had a little bit more time to contemplate what my situation was. Dr. Marsh and company who did the surgery on my pelvis wasn't really sure if I was going to walk again or if how I was going to walk again. So uh, that concerned me a little bit, of course. But with the help of my wife, some self-help books and tapes, a little bit of Zoloft and multiple episodes <coughs> of John Boy and the Waltons, I seemed to get along okay. I don't remember ever being angry at the kid that came across the center line. I think I was one of the first ones to forgive him. I didn't want to waste my energy being angry about something that I couldn't do anything about. Attitude became very important to me. I learned to meditate. I had daily conversations with God. We were pretty much on a first name basis. And I feel like or, whether you talk about spirituality as organized religion or just your inner spiritual self, that's central to healing. We all know people who've had very similar injuries, one that's become disabled, one that's become determined. So we need to remember that the fractured spirit is just as important as the fractured femur, just the timing's different. I also learned how to use visual imagery, which I touched on a little while ago. I had this house, it was a log cabin on one half, it was a futuristic house on the other with an iris door, you know, there was the ocean on one side of it, the mountains on one side, the pasture with Hereford cows on it, not Angus, but Herefords, and timber on the other side. I could walk in and talk to Phyllis, who was the, she was the librarian at Broadlands when I trained there, and then Dr. Abrams, rest his soul, who was, trained me in emergency medicine when I was in residency. And I could be active and walk around in that area when physically I couldn't. Driving was a whole different experience. 
The first time I got behind the wheel of a van, which was my parents' van because it's the only thing I would fit in because my leg couldn't totally flex, I felt like a 16-year-old kid that just got his license until I met the first car. I didn't realize how many times people come across the center line until after that wreck, but they always go back, don't they? For quite some time after that wreck, when I would go past where the trauma was, or if I'd see a picture in the paper about a severe trauma, or see a movie with a horrible trauma, I'd have flashbacks. And that's pretty much stopped. But it still, at times, will get a little emotional when I see somebody's horrible wreck. But it gets better and better as we go along. It was about six months after my wreck, I decided it was time to go back to work. So armed with my banana tie, my cane, and my bag full of physical therapy goods, went back to work half days. I'd work, go to physical therapy, do a half day clinic, and do physical therapy in the afternoon. And after a week of doing that and losing my cane and not setting it down, not worrying, knowing where it was, I finally said, I might as well go back to work. So I went back to work full time. The days were pretty tiring but the call nights were pretty devastating. I'd have to take the next morning off. But my endurance slowly increased and I you know, seemed to do pretty well. But when I went back to work, there were a couple of things I'd, I hadn't really thought of until I got closer to it. One was, was I gonna remember what I was supposed to do? And I'd been out of work for six months, even though I'd been reading medical stuff and all that jazz. But it took a little while for me to realize once I got down, sat down, which I always do with my patients, and take a little time and listen to them and talk to them, that it, it kind of just flooded back. I mean, it was like riding a bike. The thing I didn't consider was what the folks I worked with would think of me. So I thought I was a pretty empathetic physician prior to this wreck, but I know that I'm more empathetic now, especially when it comes to certain things. But it didn't take very long for them to figure out that I was still the same crazy doc that I ever was. Now, I'm sure that there may be one or two in the room that kind of wonder, well, why in, why in the heck is this guy spilling his guts about this trauma thing that he went through and all these intimate details and that? You know, does he want sympathy or something? Absolutely not. That's not why I do this talk. I do this talk for three reasons, one of which is selfish. Every time I give this talk, I heal a little bit. I get a little bit less choked up at certain times during my talk. Um, but the main reason I give this talk is for you guys, the healthcare workers. I want you to remember that whether you're a paramedic or in the emergency room, you know, you've got this person coming in on a spine board, bonkers on there, it's totally immobilized. They can't see you. I can't imagine what it would be like to go through this trauma without medical experience. I'm a family practitioner that does emergency room work, so I've seen some trauma. I know what it's like. I know what's going to happen before it's going to happen. But to not have that knowledge and have to go through this trauma situation would have been horrifying. So remember, when they're strapped down on that spine board, get your face over them. Let them see your face. Let them connect with the person. Talk to them calmly like you do when you're in a trauma situation or any kind of emergency situation. 
Tell them what you're going to do before you're going to do it, when you can. You can't always do that. I want you to also remember that there's the fractured femur and there's the fractured spirit. And there's times to deal with both. You know, you don't walk up and look down over, the, over when they're down there and say, and how's your trauma experience today? You know, take care of the fractured femur, do the internal injuries, do your definitive care. During the rehabilitative phase, that's when the fractured spirit is actually more important. Because if they lose that spirit, they're not going to heal well, and they're not going to get back to be a functioning part of society. Not everybody's comfortable doing that, and that's okay. If you're not, have a colleague that you know that is. You know, get a spiritual leader, get a counselor. Here, you guys have a lot of those options that we don't have. But just remember that fractured spirit is important, too. The third thing that I want to bring up is in our society, we are pushed so hard to multitask. But I would like to argue that driving 70 miles an hour in a two-ton vehicle is not the time to be talking on your cell phone, eating, reading, playing with your iPod, playing with your stereo, or at least don't do it in Van Buren County. Otherwise, you may end up visiting me in the trauma zone. Thank you.